welcome to another episode of Merlo and Me. I'm your host, Linda Kamau, and today I have a new guest, Amy Dong. She is the author of 21 Years Young, which is a collection of personal essays about the uncertainty, absurdity, and the beauty in growing up. Amy, how are you doing today? I'm so great. It's so good to be drinking some wine with you um, and an excellent mm-hmm. way to kick off the weekend. So thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm happy to have you. Um, what's funny is that Amy and I are both NYU alumni, but <laughs> we have never met before. <laughs> We're meeting this week. We met this week, basically. And I, I feel like that's a very common thread for people who went to NYU, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like, there's just so many students. There's no way you'd know. I feel like I've met more NYU people after graduating than I did when I was actually in school. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So from the title of the episode, I think it's a bit obvious we're going to be talking about creative writing and specifically Amy's journey to writing her own book and getting it published and what that what that process looked like and what the what what things look like after you write a book, you know, that's also important. So yeah, before we jump into all of that, we have to introduce the wine. Amy, are you a big wine person? I love wine. It is my absolute favorite drink of choice. Uh, but as mm-hmm. we were talking about a little before the episode started, it does make me a little bit drowsy. So you have to find mm-hmm. that perfect balance between happiness and wanting to fall asleep on a couch. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So today we're drinking a Côte d'Iron, which is a French wine. These wines are typically produced in the southern Rhone Valley in France, which is around the Rhone River. Have you have you been to France? I feel like you mentioned that you've traveled quite a bit. I have indeed been to France, but because I'm a tourist, mm-hmm. I've unfortunately only been to Paris, but looking to explore more when I have the time. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, France is like a dream location. Maybe one day <laughs> when this when this podcast blows up, I'll be able to fly to France. But yes. In the meantime, <laughs> yeah, so this is from the Rhone area, well, the Rhone region, but they call, I don't know why this bottle actually says villages on it. And it says that when they say villages, it's like a, spe- it's a very special Côte de Rhone that means it's like, I guess like a, not a vintage, but like a reserve, you know, like something fancy. <laughs> but yeah, to all the listeners that are listening at home, I hope you've got a drink with you and let's toast to episode 13. Cheers, Cheers. Amy. <laughs> That's hmm. good. Yeah, that is. I've had this. Have you had this one before? No, I don't think I have. Mm-hmm. This is like something I used to drink a lot because when I was at NYU, I used to live in that dorm. I'm not going to say the name of the dorm, but the one, the one near Trader Joe's. Oh, <laughs> no, yes. It was the wine <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I would always always go to the wine because they were so cheap there and that's actually where I went to get it as well they had it for like seven dollars like 7.99 so eight dollars yeah very affordable wine (laughs) I definitely used to frequent that exact wine shop as well because (laughs) prices were just ideal for the broke college student (laughs) honestly and what's funny is that they had so many other wine shops within that same neighborhood like there was the union square wines there was like astor wines and they have like way more expensive (laughs) but trader joe's was just the old faithful always had to go there yeah how do you know how to like talk about the taste the taste of the wine Oh, please teach me. I'm, Could you describe I'm, it for I, me? <laughs> I am the person that used to drink boxed wine because I, was, I couldn't tell the difference. And then I got laughed <laughs> by all of my friends. All I can say is that there's a pretty lasting but nice and rich aftertaste. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, yeah, no, I'm... <laughs> I'm going to embarrass myself by talking more. So please, please always uh, embarrass myself. Enlighten me with your with your taste buds. (laughs) Yeah. So apparently, these Coterones are very earthy wines. Mm. So that's that richness you're getting in there. Yeah. Okay. That's but but that aftertaste is like the is more of like the fruitiness is what I'm getting from it at least. And I know that they have like darker darker berries, like darker. Like I don't know what a dark berry is. I feel like like a, <laughs> like a blueberry. <laughs> is that like a dark? cherry or a plum? I feel like yeah, maybe plum. I would. I'd yeah. Say plum. yeah, I love mm-hmm. plums. <laughs> but yeah, this is like a 
a lot of body and it's quite tannic, which means that they kept the skins in contact with the grape for a lot longer mm. when they were producing the wine. Yeah. So that's a that's a feature that's very common. And that's why it's so dark. Like, do you see how red this is? It's like a it's very intense red, like beautiful. a ruby red. Yeah. You know? It's gorgeous. I love it. But yeah, this was like one of the first wines I bought when I moved to New York and I've been obsessed with it. <laughs> yeah, I drink it all the time. Although I haven't been drinking it so much now because I, I don't live in Manhattan anymore. But when I do go over there, I make it a point to pass by Trader Joe's. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. So I've got a quick little fact that I'd like to share about this wine is that Coderon is one of the oldest vineyard regions on the planet. So, well, on the planet, in the world, I guess. <laughs> Maybe in space they have older ones, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, so like um, ancient, like Greek and Roman and like medieval popes really loved that earthy taste. And mm-hmm. so much so that the reputation was so, was very high for this wine, which is again, going back to that whole villages thing. They made it um, in, in 1729, they made a royal edict <laughs> requiring each cask to be branded CDR, standing for Côte d'Iron, showing that this was wine that was better than the rest. And that was a thing. And that's why they always market. Because, I mean, I think with most wines, they'll, the, the bottle will actually say the grape as opposed to the region that it's made in. But this one does the opposite. You actually don't know what grapes they used. I had to Google it because <laughs> it's not on the bottle at all. <laughs> I don't know if you read yours, but it's, it doesn't say what grape is in there. Yeah, you're so right. Yeah, yeah. So I had to look it up and they use Grenache and Syrah. Syrah? Syrah grapes. I don't know how to say that. It's S-Y-R-A-H. And yeah, yeah, they're both. Yeah, yeah, Syrah. I'll go with Syrah. (laughs) They're both red grapes and they grow in France. So that's, that's where they're originally from. And that's what's in the wine we're drinking today. So there you go it's a little fun wine fact thank you for educating me I feel like I I'm I learn something new every day and today was a beautiful honestly <laughs> yeah like every week is a journey for me I keep finding out more things about wine it's, it's awesome yeah <laughs> um so yeah Amy you are a writer you're an author I feel like author sounds better than writer because like writer you can write a blog that's 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 easy <laughs> but an author you have a book (laughs) that's heavy stuff (laughs) so obviously the first like most basic question I'm going to ask you is like what sparked your interest in writing that's a great question and Mm -hmm. it stems mostly from two places first I really owe a lot of the technicalities of writing and you know the development of my writing ability to my high school English teachers they really knew their stuff. And they were not at all afraid to tell me um, when I was writing something that really spoke to them, or when I was writing something that was way too wordy and verbose. Um, I distinctly remember crying one day because my junior year um, English professor is basically just saying, Amy, you're a good writer, but you could probably have cut this essay in half or maybe into <laughs> fourths, and it still would have gotten the same meaning out of it. So really work on that. Um, but it was their intensity and also their, uh, their love for English that really brought out my excitement for it. Because growing up in a mostly Chinese speaking household, I never really considered the idea of writing English to be a talent that I could develop Um, or something Mm -hmm. that it now is, which is a form of self-therapy. And whenever my friends ask me, like, Amy, why do you write? I tell them I I write because I have to, because for me, journaling and, and putting my thoughts down on paper is the most quintessential way for me to really process everything that's going on in my life. I grew up as a really type A neurotic person. I was always trying to hop to the next thing. Um, And the only time where I feel like my mind isn't buzzing and racing and trying to figure out the future is actually when I'm just, when I just have a nice pen and a, and a sheet of paper that smells pretty nice. And I'm just, (laughs) I'm, I'm doodling, I'm drawing, or I'm just writing um, exactly how I'm feeling in that moment. The cool thing about journaling is that no one else is ever really going to read it. Sometimes you will never even read it. So really you write down what's important to you and and that's what matters most. 
I love that. That's an amazing answer. Like I grew up journaling quite a bit, but obviously back then it was stupid things like, oh, I have a crush on Brian. <laughs> Why doesn't Brian have a crush on me? <laughs> Those are the things I used to write about. But as I've gotten older, I have sort of used journaling to, to explore like problems that I'm having, just sort of like, like problem solving really and maybe self-therapy kind of what you you talked about just it's it's the only way you can work out the things that are going on in your head because you have a conversation with a piece of paper and it's more personal it's more private because you know no one's going to hear you shouting as they would if you were talking to yourself which is a thing people do <laughs> and I love what you said about you know putting together a puzzle of sorts you're you're figuring mm-hmm. yourself out you're problem solving and it's a very non-linear way of doing it like Oh, I wrote about so many of my, one of the essays in my book is just an ode to all the guys that I have liked or had relationships with. I definitely used to write about that. Um, but something that the famous essayist Joan Didion once wrote in one of her essays, which really stuck with me is the idea that we journal not because we know it's going to be useful in the future, but because it will be accidentally useful. Like maybe one day we'll suddenly think of something that we wrote down and be like, oh, that really makes me think of X, Y, and Z in my life today. And another part point that she made was that we journal to keep in touch with our past selves. So as we're growing, as we're changing, um, and as the environment really influences us, the one thing that will not change is that permanent pen on paper. So even if we look back in the past now and say, oh, I think I was like this, we now have proof of what we really were like. And that's through our yeah. thoughts in this journal. And um, most of us never go back to read our own journals unless we're weird. But if, um, <laughs> if one day you're just really, really bored and it's a rainy day and you have nothing else to do, flipping through an old journal is one of the coolest things you can do. And you can, you can kind of laugh at yourself in a more removed way um, and just appreciate the, the things that life is thrown your way to make, to make you the person that you are now. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. That's so true. Like when I was, I guess maybe earlier, like during the winter, this, 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 this previous winter, I was going through some of my stuff because I had just moved to this apartment and it's like, oh, what do I want to throw away? What do I want to keep? And I found an old journal from like 2017 when I just came to New York. Oh my God, I love that. And just, yeah, and then just sort of listening or reading the thoughts that I had, like 19-year-old me, so different from 23-year-old me. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> it's insane. But yeah, it's, it's really nice to keep them. I think yeah, reading it can be quite a journey. I don't recommend doing it like often because you don't want to be in that same headspace, but it is nice to look back and see how much you've grown or how silly or trivial those problems look like now <laughs> that, that you've moved past them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But yeah, tell me a bit more about your background. So I know you're Asian American. You said you have like, your, your parents are Chinese. Is that what you said okay and you chose to write in English have you ever written in Chinese I have written in Chinese but mostly those were presentations for like an AP Chinese course um, (laughs) or things where I had to do homework for Chinese school but I think the most important piece of Chinese writing I ever did was a long letter to my parents Um, my senior year of high school one tradition that we had and and maybe still have I'm not quite sure is at the end of the year when we're getting ready to graduate the parents um hand their their children letters that they wrote you know talking about what they've seen as we've been growing up what what their aspirations are for us as as we go on to become adults and to go to college and the the students so the children do the same thing in return they sort of write a letter back to their parents and i remember spending hours trying to get all of these thoughts on paper and i wrote like 12 i filled up 12 cards for them cuz i couldn't fit it all into like a single card um and it was definitely not the most beautiful chinese thing ever written but it felt mm-hmm. really much like it came from the heart i i cried while i was writing it cuz i am an emotional sap I, my parents still keep it somewhere where they won't tell me, but that was definitely by far the most important piece of writing I'd ever done in Chinese. And it, it was important mostly because I was speaking in their mother tongue, um, Mm. showing that appreciation for them being two people who came here with $200 in their pocket and 
over the course of a couple of years, just learning English to, to survive and not just to survive, but to thrive and send um, both mm. their daughters to university. So it's really like an ode and a testament to, to my parents sacrificed. I love that. That's, that's are you an only child, by the way? I have an older sister. <laughs> okay. And I was, I was curious because that's a, that's a sentiment that I can relate to because uh, my parents are Kenyan. Well, I'm Kenyan too. Why am I saying it like I'm Amer- I'm not American. <laughs> I'm an immigrant. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm Kenyan and there's like lots of languages over there. Everybody, well, most people speak English and Swahili, but we also have like our mother tongues and I am horrible at my mother tongue. I can barely speak it, can barely read it. I can't read, actually, I can't read it at all. I'm illiterate in my mother tongue, but Mm -hmm. I can understand some things when they say it, but I struggle to speak it. So I can imagine how much that meant to your parents to see you Mm -hmm. sit down and work on this letter, tell them how you feel. I can imagine like the emotional journey it was even just to write it, you know? And I'd love to do something like that one day. But I think it's, what I was trying to get at is that I think it's really important to stay connected to your heritage and your past, despite the fact that you are in a place where people are predominant, predominantly speaking English and maybe Spanish. I don't know. <laughs> New York is interesting. <laughs> yeah. But are there any other languages that you've picked up along the way? Uh, well, I would like to say that I picked them up and kept them, but <laughs> the only two I can speak now are English and Chinese. I did for some reason convince myself that taking three years of Latin was a good idea in middle school, wow. um, but it, it did end up helping my my English in a way, but it was learning Latin was more so an appreciation of um, an old civilization that just has influenced everything that we do now. I remember crying. Mm. I, Crying must be the theme of my my episode today. I cry a lot. <laughs> crying and <laughs> code de room. Um, <laughs> exactly. But when I went to Rome for the first time and I saw the Colosseum, I broke down in tears because I was like, wow, this is something that I used to study like religiously every single day because I was really obsessed with Roman life and culture. And it was there. It was still standing, um, albeit reduced to, to a form of rubble, but still standing after all these hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, so yeah appreciation for culture for sure um and as I write about in my book if you know I had a past relationship with a guy who was Korean or was another um was of another like cultural descent I would I would try to pick up their their language as well mostly for pleasing the parents and yeah <laughs> trying to be cool but if I could pick up another language I I do believe it would be Spanish I think I was scared of taking Spanish as a as a kid, because it was sort of seen as the required thing if you grew up in Houston, Texas, which is where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be, I wanted to be the rebel and do something else. But I, I do see the merit of of learning Spanish and of course of of treating um people of Hispanic or Spanish descent with just as much civility as as others, which unfortunately is not always the case um yeah. given our our current political climate (laughs) oh man (laughs) we don't even need to get into that right now (laughs) that might have to be its own episode with lots of crying but (laughs) yeah um yeah I think that's really interesting that you talked about picking up well you talked about like the education side of things as well so I wanted to ask you um what brought you to NYU in the first place and what were you studying while you were there and how has that influenced what you wrote also a great question. It is a direct mm. correlation with so many of the essays that I wrote. Um, uh-huh. The f- one that's coming to mind right now is the one I titled, Had I Gone to Harvard? Because <laughs> my older sister went to Harvard for undergraduate. And because yeah. of all the expectations of my family, of my community, um, and of my school, I assumed that that's where I wanted to go as well. And I applied early um, and I was waitlisted. And I was not just waitlisted and or rejected from Harvard, I was rejected from almost every single school that I thought I was going to get into. And for some reason, NYU was the only one um, that was like, we actually want you. And um, I was like, well, you know what? I guess that's it. And there were two other schools in Texas that I had to choose from, but I was like, if I'm going to go to college, I want to really step out of my comfort zone. So I was like, NYU, here I come. And that essay Mm -hmm. is all about exploring that parallel universe of, okay, if I hadn't quote unquote failed, 
um, what would my life, what could my life have looked like had I gone to a different university? And without spoiling too much of it, it's it's basically the realization that after everything that's happened, after all the tears, again, crying, I cried <laughs> for not meeting certain expectations that I thought were so important. I couldn't have be I couldn't have been prouder of the voice that I had developed over four years at NYU. And though I may have enjoyed being at any other university, um, I I definitely wanted to appreciate the voice that I had developed the way the way it did. And my message to other young adults would be, um, you know, fail that that course, you know, get rejected by something. Those rejections are so, so powerful because, number one, they're proof that your worth isn't determined by however many number of no's you get but rather the number of yeses you get and how you react to both. And for me, I was definitely upset at first, um, but then I was like, no, let's just take this and run with it and see where it takes me. And where it took me was in fact, 25 countries and five continents over two years, because I did not do as much research as I should have for NYU Stern, but I ended up studying abroad twice, once in Prague, once in Singapore. And I took several courses that were travel based um, in terms of social impact or sustainable business. And it it made me feel so small and insignificant in the world in the most beautiful of ways. I could go anywhere and say, wow, there are people with their own lives, their own problems, with their own um, passions and purposes. And I'm just a, a tiny little part of that. And it's, it's really nice. And it's very serendipitous. So if anything, I feel like going to NYU is the reason that I now am someone who likes taking risks, who likes doing random, weird, and spontaneous things, and who doesn't care so much about what other people think because um, been there, done that, didn't really work out, and now I'm trying to just do what I think is is um, an, a right next step. <laughs> I love. I really, I really can connect to that because I think. When I applied for college, actually didn't apply to NYU, stayed out of high school. <laughs> I did not apply there. I applied to a bunch of other schools. Um, a memorable one was Columbia, and they wait, they waitlisted me too. <laughs> and that was great. I had an interview and everything, but it ended up being a no, which was fine. But yeah, the school I got into was in Florida. And while I was comfortable there, there were so many elements about that, that situation that I was surrounded by people who I went to high school with that I just, I felt like there was no opportunity to grow. So that was the leap that made me say, okay, I'm transferring to NYU. Let's do this. And I got in and I was like, okay, it must be, I don't know if it's fate, if it's divine intervention, if it's God, whatever it is, <laughs> something pushed me there. And I'm glad that it did because it taught me to sort of leap into things that I'm not hundred percent sure of. And I think in the past, I had a problem with decision-making because I wanted to be certain before I even made the choice, you know, and that's right. not how life works. You know, sometimes things are just, it just happen, and you have to go with the flow. And that's, that's, that's tough for type A personalities, you know, you want to have control. Yeah. Absolutely. And it yeah. <laughs> what you said totally resonates with me. And it, it reminds me of that quote. I can't remember who said it, but it's like plans are, are made to be broken. Um, or yeah. like planning is good, but sticking to them is almost never how things work. Um, yeah. and I just, I love that. It's like, yes, it's human nature to try to set a path, but the meaning that we derive from creating those paths is not nearly as significant or as long lasting as, um, how we navigate, how to change those paths when, if, and when we realize that's not exactly how life is going to pan out for us. Yeah. That's, that's the biggest skill. It's not the planning. It's the being able to, to, to switch things up. That flexibility Mm -hmm. is more important than anything. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I can totally relate to that. And you said 25 countries in two years. Yeah. (laughs) That's sort of what I, yeah. What is sort of my reaction even now? Like I still can't really fathom how that happened. Um, But very long story short, when I was in Europe, I, and in Singapore, I I sort of stacked all my classes as all college students do between Tuesday and Thursday, traveled Mm. almost every Friday through Monday. Um, and as also every college student does, we, my friends and I tried to find the cheapest tickets everywhere. So we were doing like $20 round trips to Poland, taking midnight buses and, um, cranking out our presentations, like while we were on our bus rides. But 
it was beautiful in a way. It was sort of the epitomized version of work hard, play hard, but in a way where we felt like we were actually learning about ourselves and not just sitting in a classroom and putting theory to paper, but going out into the real world and being like, okay, you know, if I lose my wallet, which I did three times, <laughs> I think God just wanted that wallet to go away. That That's sort of how I think about it now. I wrote a humor essay about that in my book. Um, but uh-huh. like, how do, how do you deal with a situation like that? How do you come across as a not completely socially inept and broken down human? Um, or there are other situations where you know, you're offered a chance to go cliff diving and you're scared of heights, but you're like, okay, maybe I should just do it because it's not about the cliff diving. It's about, can I face my fears head on and just, just do it because I see other people doing it. And if I do it too, then maybe I'll just, maybe I might just take that risk and quit my job to pursue my dreams. Um, yeah. They're all connected like that. And when, when people ask me why I study abroad, I'm like, because you never know what's going to happen when you travel. And that's the Honestly. best part about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that, that's very valid. I did try to study abroad, but fate did not have it that way <laughs> for me, which was fine. It's fine. I traveled a lot in high school, so I was content with it. And I plan to do so more now that I'm an adult. Please don't home thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any, any chance you have, I would say, take it. <laughs> always take it. Yeah, that's a very valid lesson. Um, is there, did you have a favorite of all the, of all 25 or wherever else you've been? Since? Yeah, I think I'm biased because I am of Asian descent, but my <laughs> two favorite <laughs> places were Japan and Taiwan. Japan, because mm-hmm. it was a, I feel like everyone says that and I'm maybe, maybe people can just call me basic, but I thought it was overhyped too. When I went, I was like, there's no way it can be as good as how, what people say. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a perfect mismatch, mix match of, you know, a city life, but also just an hour away is this, these beautiful, almost unreal mountains and Japanese gardens. I will say, however, because I was at the same time taking courses in Japanese culture and history and commerce, I knew when I was there, I would only ever want to be a tourist in Japan. I would never actually want to live or be raised in Japan. Um, because the dark side of all the pristine um, products that you see of all the orderly um, business, it's just it's just one of the most perfect societies in every sense of the word. But the, mm. the way to achieve that perfection is through a lot of grueling hard work and a lot of suppressed uh, mental health issues, which I think teen- or teenagers and Japanese youth are finally starting to open up about, but it is it is quite insane how much they are expected to work and to live up um, to the past generation's expectations, even as things are changing. And for mm-hmm. Taiwan, it was very much um, a return to my home culture. Even though my parents are from China, Taiwan is just so similar in some regards. Um, of course, politics are completely separate, which is why they are now two separate entities. But um, (laughs) exploring that was, it it made me miss my family a lot, but in the best of ways. And it's also why Mm -hmm. when I was applying for Fulbright, I really wanted to teach in Taiwan, not only to to work with students and to mentor, which is something I, I feel like I really want to pursue for the rest of my life, but also to reconnect with a culture and to improve my own Chinese. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. Um, I feel like most people who went to Japan did not get to do such an in-depth <laughs> tour of the country and really integrate with the society and its culture and its history and all that. So I really respect that. I really respect when people travel somewhere for a long enough time to pick up stuff. Because, I mean, it's great to also go for like a week, two weeks if you're trying to like go to every country in the world. That's, mm-hmm. that's also a goal that people can have. And that's great. But if you really want to say you were, you were there, it helps to have been there for like a couple of months or even just one month that you can learn so much in one month that you wouldn't learn from like a three day, one week trip, you know? Absolutely. And if you mm. want to form any sort of permanent relationships with locals, you, you really right. have to, you have to learn to live like a local or at least respect it and understand mm. it, um, which is harder to do when you just have like a weekend somewhere for sure. <laughs> exactly. I'm surprised that NYU Stern had all these travel opportunities because Stern for all the listeners man Stern is like its own college it's not really NYU it's its own university and I know this because um 
I heard that when you transfer between like CAS and Stern, which are two different schools of NYU, it's like you have to apply from scratch. It's like you have to go back to common up and get your way back into the university again. That's crazy to me because it's the same school. Why? Why is it so closed off? I don't understand. Yeah. I <laughs> for also for all the listeners, if you have if you went or are going to NYU, you know exactly what we're talking about. It's it yeah. is the most intense and strange. I wouldn't say rivalry, but just blockade I have ever seen. Um, but yes, you are so right. It is weird. I did not expect that. And the only mm-hmm. reason I think I got to do it twice is because I was um, there's an actual study abroad exchange program where we're not just at an mm-hmm. NYU site. But I was able to study at the National University of Singapore for four months, which was great because I went not knowing a single NYU student. And that, again, forced me to to actually make new friends and and meet locals and do a bunch of weird things that I might have been too scared to do otherwise. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) well, I mean. With writing, I think it takes a lot of bravery to write about yourself and your own personal experiences because. You have to be vulnerable. You have to be (laughs) willing to accept that, you know, maybe 5 million people will read it 10 years from now. Who knows? You know, and that's that's a big step. So do you what do you think was like the starting point for you? Like what made you think, okay, I'm going to write a book about all these intimate lessons? Like when did you even start? Do you think you started 10 years ago with your old journals or did you start like two Mm. years before you actually published the book, you know? Yeah, another great question. I would say by there was a moment in high school where my teacher told me to submit some of my personal essays to the scholastic art and writing competition where I was like, oh, Mm. if you see merit in this, maybe. And um, I had never received any sort of recognition for writing before. But there was this one year where I got to go to Carnegie Hall to accept a national gold medal from this organization. And for me, it was more like, oh, if someone else believes in me, then maybe I should too. Um, it was never yeah. about that. Just the, the thought that, okay, maybe someone actually enjoys my writing. Um, and then it was sort of a pipe dream of maybe one day I'll write a book. And then mm-hmm. it wasn't until a couple of crazy things happened in college where I was like, one day, like, I need, I need to do this. Um, I don't know when, I don't know how, but I, I need to do this for me. And those two moments or three moments, I would say first is getting rejected from all of those colleges and realizing it was the best thing that could have happened to me because I wanted to share that with other young adults who were struggling through the same pressures. The second mm-hmm. one was being diagnosed with um, an eating disorder, anorexia nervosa in 2017, um, getting pulled out of college because a physician told me that I should have had a heart attack a long time ago and was lucky to be alive. So I wow. really needed to reckon with um, what what I valued in life. And it was, it was a point of ther- another point of therapy for me. And then the third thing was Uh, traveling so much and realizing that there was so much out there that I never knew existed um, because my, my mind's, my perspective was just so narrow um, and wanting to share that to not only encourage people to, to travel if, if they had the means, but also just to say, you know, no one, no one is thinking about you as much as you think they are. And that's actually a good thing. Um, (laughs) And that definitely helps me with, through my eating disorder recovery too, which, which was, of course, a very much psychiatric, physiological coping mechanism as opposed to an actual food issue. Um, mm-hmm. Anyone with an eating disorder will tell you it's not actually about the food, it's about something else, um, mental health-wise. And I I spent uh, quite a long time in my life reckoning with that. And so I, was, mm-hmm. I felt like I wanted to share to to lend a voice to, to that other people who are also fighting through the same things. Oh, that's so interesting. I'm, I know we talked about this before off off the off the podcast, but yeah, I did I did do an episode about like fat phobia, yeah. and mental stigmas that people have, and it's not any one person's fault. It's just the way media is portrays people and how those lessons stick into your brain as you grow up. And there's a lot of unlearning that you have to do as you become an adult so I can imagine I mean I haven't read your book but I'd love to read it I'm probably gonna have to order an ebook soon <laughs> unless you want to send me a copy <laughs> I, I absolutely will don't worry I'll, I'll send Yay. it to you after okay. <laughs> even better but yeah um 
so you do you think that your target audience was really just young adults like college age students like people about to go into college or people just recently graduating is that yeah. who you were targeting yeah my target audience is absolutely young adults who are just terrified mm. of what their future holds um there is a book that I, I had a lot of qualms with, but there were some very important and meaningful nuggets of truth in there called The Defining Decades, uh, which is just about how the 20s are simultaneously the most um, foreign, the most controversial, the most filled with uncertainty, and the just the sheer number of paths you can take is, is daunting, but also one of the most important and significant ones. You make so many of your big life choices in your 20s, whether you want to think yeah. about it or not. Um, a lot of people get into a serious relationship. Um, people find at least their first few careers in their 20s, whether mm-hmm. they want to do grad school, um, where they want to live, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. So my book was a less scientific version of that and be like, everyone's story is very personal, but there are also very many universal messages in here. Mm-hmm. That being said, I did have a couple of people who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and even 70s reach out to me and say, you know, Amy, as much as as this book is for um, people who are around your age, we really resonated with this because in the book, you talk about things like midlife crises and how they should be renamed into midlife transitions. And we just Mm -hmm. thought that um, there, there was one woman who wrote particularly she she writes for the New York Times and she was like Amy I would actually like to argue that there's more uncertainty the older you get and I liked it more because of that and I was like wow well that's really nice to hear your opinions on that um and maybe an interesting opinion though I didn't I didn't think that would be the fact wow I didn't think so either but I guess both of us will have to wait and see um if that's true or not but yeah I anxiety for the future Uh, so now I'm curious right like I want to see what those uncertain pieces are but um apparently it resonates with people of all of all age groups which is nice to hear Mm -hmm. and it it does make sense in a sense because they're just general topics of love mental health uh finding a job that that is meaningful to you and you know what what is what is meaningful in life and what matters at the end um really yeah Mm mm-hmm Actually, in a previous episode, I don't think it's out yet, but <laughs> there is an episode that I was chatting with one of my like close friends and we're talking about that transition when we're just finishing high school, about to go to university and how that was a big change for us because there was a lot of big movements that were becoming more popular at the time, which was like having your hair out, like your natural hair out and accepting the way your hair grows out of your head. That was like a big one for me at that age, as well as... I guess veganism was becoming a thing and (laughs) we were sort of juggling whether we want to be plant-based or like pescatarian and all that stuff yeah yeah there's so many there's so many things I can imagine that even when you get to your 40s and 50s there's gonna be more maybe even larger and more significant changes that you need to make and choices that you need to decide upon and just for context by the way if you're listening Amy is only 22 years old. I know she sounds very wise and <laughs> mature, but she's actually younger than me. So <laughs> yeah, that's just just to make you feel a little bit bad about not having a book. Amy has one. <laughs> I feel like I've been exposed, but thank you. <laughs> very kind okay, of, there's no shame in your age, by the way. <laughs> Being young uh, is great. <laughs> yeah, no, maybe I exposed myself by not knowing what, what good wine should taste like. I feel like that's something yeah, that I learn true. as I age, just like mm-hmm. find wine ages it does age fine that's that's true that's true I think probably like 10 years from now I'd like to still be doing this podcast and hopefully by then I will know all the fancy wine terms and I've tried maybe 8,000 out of 10,000 wine varieties also there's 10,000 grape varieties did you know that I love that and that's an important (laughs) fact (laughs) Totally a tangent, but my first ever email username had the words frozen grapes in it because I just <laughs> loved, loved grapes for the longest time. So amazing. Oh, it's cute. I, I had a very stupid email, something like glamorous. <laughs> and I know I know it was glamorous because I spelled glamorous wrong. <laughs> I had G-L-A-M-A-R-O-U-S. <laughs> I love that is so funny. I love that. 
yeah <laughs> i think it was that the one fergie song that, that was stuck in my head i still couldn't spell it right so that's great <laughs> um yeah um but okay so you're talking about some of the lessons that resonated with your with your readers but what is the biggest lesson to you from your book mm. or if you say like the most like the three biggest lessons from your book that you would yeah. like to share <laughs> I will just list them in no particular order as they come off the top of my head. One is life is finite. It is short, but Mm -hmm. there's only meaning in it because it has an end. Um, If, if life were infinite, if, if we could live forever, then nothing that we did would really matter because we would have endless opportunities to make them up, to, to retry things. But because Mm -hmm. we only have a certain amount of time to live every decision that we make to some extent is, is meaningful. We, we give things meaning by choosing to make them happen. And the, some of the clearest examples I could think of that are, you know, do I study the thing that I want to study or the thing that I feel like I'm pressured to study? And there are rights and wrongs in both ends. Um, but you know, you really have to make that judgment call for yourself. And that that's one of them for sure. Um, mm. make every choice count. The yeah. second one is no one cares about you as much as you think they do, which is a lesson that my therapist imparted on me, which I thought was an insult at first. I was like, wow, am I really that like, so vain? <laughs> I really that vain? Like I'm in that proud prideful, which the answer is yes, sort of sometimes, but um, like most people are, it's not just, yeah. you. <laughs> don't worry. But it's a beautiful sentiment because when you think about it, like, wow, you can really do anything and no one's really going to care that much um, Mm -hmm. unless you're severely breaking the law, in which case I would recommend that you reconsider. But it it gives you so much more wiggle room to to do things that Mm -hmm. you felt like you were scared to do. Um, Expectations are not nearly as um, burdensome as, as one might think. And in fact, most people's expectations are simply projections of their own struggles and problems. So that'd be number two. No one thinks about you as much as you think they do. And the third one I always phrase as a question, which is what would you do if you weren't afraid? And that Mm. can be something so small, like telling your crush that you like them because the worst thing that can happen is they say no. And in which case you give yourself time um, and emotional energy all the way to I'm going to sell my house um, get rid of all my furniture and just move to a little cottage in Paris with uh, my new husband because we decided to live however long we have left to live um, with as much joy and purpose as we want to by volunteering, by mm-hmm. by only like cooking in our house. And I say that as if it's a true thing because it is a very much true story. One of my high school English teachers just completely abandoned ship in the US because she was like, I, she was like, I just kind of feel like I want a new adventure. She's in her seventies. She sold her house, sold all of her belongings, packed everything up into two suitcases. Um, and with her um, new husband, she moved to Paris and they have Good never been. Her. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of France being a pipe dream, it's never too late. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I don't have to go now. I could go in my 60s or 70s. Why not? (laughs) Of course. So yeah, those would be three things that I talk about, um, whether that's through my eating disorder, whether that's through travel or through incredibly Mm -hmm. dumb things that I do because I want to keep some of the essays light. But Mm. yeah. I would, I would say those are my three. <laughs> I love that. Well, if you, if you could answer that third one, what is something that you, you would do if you weren't, if you had no fear? Ah, I hope my, I hope my corporate job isn't listening into this podcast right now. We're still a baby podcast. <laughs> yeah, it would actually be to quit my full-time job in economic development consulting and okay. spend as much time as I deem necessary working with my publisher and helping other first-time authors develop their voices and make an impact in the world. Um, mm. I currently work part-time for my publisher, so I'm halfway there. And yeah. I am that aggressive and persistent person. So if I feel like I really want a full-time job, which I hope I I hope I can get, um, I think at the end of the year, I'm just I'm just gonna go up to them and ask for one and see what they say. So yeah, take um, I'm scared. Lead. I'm scared of doing it, but, and I, I don't know the stability in that because of course, consulting is seen as a much more stable position, but if I'm mm-hmm. going to be honest, 
Um, I love having one-on-one conversations. I like talking with you right now. It's, this is definitely going to be the highlight of my Friday. And (laughs) I want to continue doing that and helping other people feel like their voice matters and that their story matters. And I can do that much more easily through a job at my publishers than I can um, sitting in an office making PowerPoint slides all day. (laughs) Oh, for sure. For sure. I can agree. I resonate with that so much because even though that's sort of what inspired this podcast, because I enjoy having these intimate conversations like one on one with a person and just sort of picking their brain about whatever topic of interest (laughs) I've decided to use. So I I can understand that completely. Um, Yeah, well, actually, the the next thing I was going to ask you is about the publishing world, since you are involved. Mm -hmm. What was that that process like looking for a publisher and like submitting your I guess it's like a, an abstract. What do you even submit when you're when you're pitching a story? Because you you don't send the whole thing. You have to send like a right. chapter or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> All I pitched was an idea. I had nothing wow. yet. And that but was enough. I will say it's because I went with um something in the middle of the publishing spectrum. I think publishing itself is just a super complicated and daunting industry because you have mm. everything from self-publishing, which is becoming a lot more popular. Um, yeah. All the way to traditional publishing, which is where you're Simon and Schuster, Penguin, uh, Random House, all of those yeah. publishers sort of sit. And in between that, there's everything from vanity press to hybrid publishing to university presses. And I went with something called hybrid publishing, which is instead of getting paid in advance up front, which I would then have to pay off through book sales later on, like any traditional mm. house does. Um, I crowdfunded my publishing costs up front, um, raising around $8,000 for a paperback, a hardcover, and an audiobook, which is getting released at the end of the year. And, oh, wow. and working with you know a team of specialized um, editors, copy editors, designers to, to bring my book to fruition. And one thing that one of my biggest missions right now is to sort of demystify that whole publishing spectrum. I was just on a call with an, uh, a writer who's like, I really want to publish a book, but I have no idea where to begin. And I would, mm-hmm. I always start by saying like, you know, what, what are your goals? Because depending on what you need and what you want at a particular point in time, it's sometimes much better to go with self-publishing hybrid or vanity than with the traditional firm, um, which yeah. Sometimes can take years to come into fruition, unless you're someone like Michelle Obama. Um, I think her right. book, or celebrity. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I think she got an, a ridiculous. I think she got like a forty million dollar advance to write Becoming, which is just what? unheard of. But it's because she's Michelle Obama, and of course, yeah. And that book it. sold. I bought. I, I think I bought yeah. two. I, I don't even know why I bought two, but I did. <laughs> yeah, I bought two, and it was it was beautiful. It got made into a whole documentary. Like it was it was yeah. very fun. Um, like but that's sort of. Mm-hmm. The difference in in all of them yeah that's that's really interesting I didn't know that there was that many ways to get published mm-hmm. do you think like just personally do you think that the publishing world or just even just books in general are kind of like being run out just because of everyone's interest in visual content and not reading and <laughs> and maybe audiobooks will sort of replace the the written text because I still do like to have a physical book I like turning pages that's always fun mm-hmm. But how do you feel about that? mm -hmm, I will say I'm just like you. I'm super biased. I need a physical book. I love smelling the pages. I love turning the pages. Never settle for um, a digital copy because that's just very not me. But of course, I feel like there are just very strong opinions. You're either only physical books or you're like only eBooks. That being said, the sales reality is that yes, physical books, the sales are in decline, um, partly Mm -hmm. because of COVID, partly because there are the rise of audiobooks and eBooks, but just like with, even with like collecting vintage cards or, or cars or anything, there will always be, I, I know in my heart, there will always be a population of people that enjoys reading physical books. Um, and Definitely. the only way I see that not existing is if there was some, like one day, a law that sort of just banned the printing of books because everything right. is digitalized. So in that sense, I believe in the power of a physical book, um, but it is, it definitely is not the only avenue for people to sort of get information now. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I totally agree with what you were saying, because that's something that I 
was was pondering a lot because I like there was a there was a time you know I'm a creative writing minor that, that was part of my degree cough cough <laughs> but yeah I never actually wrote anything oh I, I wrote a poem once and that got published by like a little indie magazine and that was fun but I always wonder like who even like if people really do read anymore but I like the idea of the fact that people would always those was going to be like vintage collectors and just people who like books you don't even have to be a collector I think anyone could enjoy I think what's going to die out actually is more like fiction that's going to be a hard sell because people are more interested in reading about real lives and learning or maybe that's just me because I've, I've shifted a lot from reading fiction <laughs> I don't read fiction anymore it's very yeah you'll, um, you'll have a lot of fighters on your podcast because I know some- I know someone's <laughs> gonna cancel me right now <laughs> some like, of my friends are like I only read fantasy book or like I only read <laughs> historical and period pieces and I'm like y'all are crazy yeah. but go for it <laughs> yeah I mean I'm sure there's, there's an audience for everything that's the moral of the of the podcast. I don't hate fiction. I love it too. I just don't think as many people are reading it. That's mm-hmm. all. Um, but yeah, just like looking back at your own book, is there anything you wish you would have written differently? Mm-hmm. I wish that I could have added a few more essays, I would say. But mm. I guess that is just more motivation for me to write a second collection once I feel like I'm ready. And something that every author struggles with is there is no book, I think, that is completely and 100% free of errors, no matter how you look at it. And I would actually, when I went back to read my book as an audiobook, there were parts where I was like, wow, I totally could have worded that better. Or there was a much more eloquent way to say a certain word. <laughs> Um, but when I, when I have those thoughts, instead of saying negatively, like, dang it, you know, I missed my chance. I instead say, Hmm, I think that just signifies my continuous growth as a writer and as a reader, because whenever people ask me, you know, like what happens when you get writer's block, what do you do? I say, Mm. I just read a lot. And like, of course, imitation is the best form of flattery, especially in creative industries. I, mm. I would not trust a single author who says they've never been influenced by someone. Like there are clear authors whose books, like I, I religiously read over and over again. I highlight, I underline, I, I study <laughs> their writing because it's something that I want to emulate, but with my own twist. Um, and so when I see things that I want to improve, I'm like, ah, that's just me. Uh, that's just my, my growth as, as a writer, as a human, as a thinker. Um, and so no, no regrets, but definitely areas that in my next book, I will, I will probably change up in terms of style. That's really cool. Um, do you want to list some of the writers that you, that inspire you? Oh, Maybe absolutely. like the top three. It doesn't have to be top yeah. three, just any three. <laughs> in- mm-hmm. Top three, Joan Didion, who's a really, okay. really well-known American essayist. Um, mm-hmm. David Sedaris, who is absolutely hilarious and his essayists are famous for being simultaneously humorous and just it's just so so funny he makes fun of everything he makes fun of himself he's a very um (laughs) he's a very critical and petty man but he (laughs) capitalizes on that he really exposes himself and in in really insightful ways so as petty as he is also like okay let me now reflect on my pettiness And then finally, um, an author who unfortunately passed away because he took his own life, um, David Foster Wallace. So he really redefined a lot of postmodern writing in America. And he struggled a lot with with depression, um, with sort of addiction. And he he's one of those writers where you just you read his work and you think, I can't even believe he had these kinds of thoughts running through his mind. Just probably the most brilliant man I have never met um (laughs) whatever is in his brain and whenever people ask you know who's the one person living or dead that you want to have a conversation with I always say David Foster Wallace because the stuff Mm -hmm. that he wrote even in the 2000s um there was one piece he wrote in his book Infinite Jest it's a thousand pages but he writes this one scene about a day in the future where we have um, like filters like we do on zoom now and it escalates to the point that people are too scared to go outside of their house even because they they're they look so different on camera that they feel this in, 
anxiety that all of a sudden everyone just switches back to absolutely no filters, only phone calls, like nothing at all. And, mm. and it's just, I feel like I can, it's, it's sort of already happening that, that transition towards um, filters, uh, perfection, striving for that um, anxiety yeah. going outside. And maybe one day we'll all just give it up again and say, you know what, screw this. Let's pay even more for just a normal phone that doesn't have any of these features. Um, so yeah, that would be a dream. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of a predictive pre- uh, uh, wizard in 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 my my world, my mind. So I, yeah. I very much enjoy reading anything that those three write. David Foster Wallace. I've never heard of him. I've heard of the other two, but I've never heard of him. So mm-hmm. that's somebody that I will be looking up after this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you mentioned working, possibly working on a sequel eventually. Do you think you would stick to the essay format or would you like switch things up? Maybe do some poems? <laughs> I love poems. Um <laughs> But I feel like if I were to write poems, I'd probably just want to write a separate poetry collection or yeah. I could just be postmodern myself and break all the rules and do a mixture of both. Who knows? But because, do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I am generally pretty uncreative and I just stick with one thing, I probably will do another essay collection. But of course, the themes will be slightly different. There are already stories in my mind that I would want to write. And what I do every single day, actually, if I hear something that's interesting in a conversation, even if I have a dream that I think is uh, is memorable, um, mm-hmm. I just take out my phone, I write it down on notes, or I have a sheet of paper and I scribble it down. And I have this repository of that I just titled very creatively essay ideas. Um, and that <laughs> that list is is like, like 30 10 years long. Essay. Yes, it's so <laughs> many ideas that I still haven't put down on paper. So I am. I am in no need of more ideas, I think, but I I do, I would like some time um, to sit down and really process those because mm-hmm. there are, uh, as with all of us, there, there have been some pretty serious things that have happened with even within, even since I published my first collection that um, I never could have expected to happen to my life, both things that are beautiful and things that are very tragic. And one day, one day, I'm sure they, those will come out into the world. Um, but for now, they will just exist in my mind until I'm ready to uh, spill the beans. <laughs> and on the notes app. I love it. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, now that we're nearing the end, I wanted to ask if you had any like tips or habits that you would share with aspiring writers because we never know who's in the audience today they might be working on a book yeah of course so if you are someone who is considering writing a book or just want to focus on your writing one of the most basic tips I always give writers is to find out what kind of writer you are to me there are three kinds one is a deadline writer, which is someone, as you might expect, who can really only get the most out of his or her brain when they have accountability partners or when they have a deadline, like, okay, by the end of August, you need to write 10,000 words. And deadline writers are the ones who wait until the last 24 hours to write those 10,000 words, but they're beautiful. Um, The second type of writer is the episodic writer. That's the kind of writer I am where you have writer's block for a period of time, but then all of a sudden you wake up or you have the shower thought or it's 3 a.m. and you're really emotional and you're like, I just need to sit down for five, six hours, not do anything except write. And that happened to me many, many times. There would be weeks where I couldn't get anything out. And then there would be days on end where I'd like, all I'd be doing is sitting in front of my camera and my mom would be like, are you frozen there? Um, (laughs) Second kind. And the third kind is the daily writer, the routine writer where you just set yourself, um, you know, use the Pomodoro timer, or or do something where you know every day from 7 a.m to 8 a.m you're writing or every day yeah. from 10 p.m to 11 a or 11 p.m you're you're writing it doesn't matter what you write it doesn't matter the quality just write and at some point there will be themes that emerge and I would say that's like one of the first things that you can do because there's no use stressing mm-hmm. about not writing every day if that's simply not the kind of writer you are and another piece of advice which is just the most obvious advice is to write. It doesn't matter how you write. It can be in a journal, in a blog, to a friend, um, on your phone. It does not matter as long as you actually practice your craft. And then the third piece of advice, read a lot. There is no such thing as a good writer who is not also a good reader. Um, As I mentioned earlier, yeah, you have to be inspired by something 
And most of the times that is other authors or writers Mm -hmm. who have come up with ideas or even styles that just resonate with you. And for everyone, that's different. That's why I go for essays. Um, That's why other fellow authors of mine go for poetry or for fiction, Uh, even if the two of us go for Yeah, yeah those, are, those are amazing tips. I, I always hear the one for just always write, like write whenever you can, write in the morning, write on the train, write on the toilet, like write wherever you feel like writing. Just make sure you're writing at some point. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I didn't, I never heard, I never knew there was three types of writers. So that's interesting. I think it's something I'd like to consider. I, I would consider myself probably the third one mm-hmm. <laughs> because I do like to write a little bit every day, but that's more of like journaling. I don't think that's, for the purposes of <laughs> publishing a book, but who knows, you know, mm-hmm. the, way, the way the world is going, it might be. Um, yeah, but thanks for sharing all of that. Um, at the end of the episode, I do like to ask my guests some wine questions. Yes, okay. because you already know. <laughs> I already told you this, but yeah, the first question is what's your favorite or go-to drink? So my favorite go-to drink is usually it's not wine per se but it I would say is fancy like wine um Mm -hmm. if I can get my hands on this which is usually at a nicer restaurant or just at a bar it's any form of lychee cocktail or lychee mimosa because I love as a flavor it's very Asian but there's just one time I went to a bar in the lower east side Mm -hmm. and it was very dimly lit. Um, it was very experimental. And there was like a lychee rose mimosa that they had. Wow. And inside there were these white tapioca pearls that they had made that were filled with a kind of milk syrup. It's so weird. I uh, You said <laughs> go-to choice. I've only had this once, but it just, it blew my mind. <laughs> that I was your favorite. I will now always be on the lookout for more lychee cocktails because they also usually have a lychee on top. In terms of wine, um, I like both red and white wine. When Mm -hmm. I'm drinking with a friend though, I feel like red wine is for some reason a little bit nicer. It feels like intimate in a way. Maybe it's the color. Maybe it's like the dark rougey color that I like. I think so. Um, Even just the fact that you're drinking it at night, you know, if you're drinking it during the day, it'll feel a little off like right now, but (laughs) it still, it still works. (laughs) Exactly. It's fine. Exactly. Yeah. No, I like that. But what is something that you do, you never want to drink again? Oh my gosh. (laughs) I never want to drink again this Southeast Asian, um, it's just, it's like 70% alcohol and they make it with fermented snake skin. It is, what? So <laughs> um, it's, it's like a delicacy in Vietnam. And when we were on just one of those tour groups at the very end, there was like, oh, try some snake liquor. And our tour guide pulled <laughs> out this giant bottle of like white liquid or very clear, clear liquid, but there was um, a full snake inside. And we're like, of course that snake was alive at some point. It's just sitting in there looking happy. Um, Mm. And we got just the tiniest, like a thimble size serving of this drink. And I almost died. (laughs) It was so (laughs) strong. And as much as much as sometimes you want to drink just to get drunk, I don't think I would ever drink to get drunk off of that. Although the it was nice, skin. <laughs> nice to experience once, probably will never do it again. <laughs> yeah, you were living fearlessly, and I, I respect that. Indeed, <laughs> but indeed. snake snake skin though that's that's a leap. <laughs> that, yeah, that might be the craziest it. one I've heard. So far. Yeah, as my as my parents always say, try everything once, but if it's not your cup of tea, like throw it away. Yeah, exactly. No, I. I can accept that that's a good answer um again the last one is you could either tell me the story of your first sip of alcohol or your worst sip okay first sip of alcohol because I just I think I just told you my worst sip <laughs> yeah that, that sounded like your worst, that, that definitely was my worst sip. the first sip of alcohol I was in middle school and <laughs> My, I think the same thing happened with my sister, but my, it was just a wholesome family dinner. We were all sitting down. I wanted to pour myself some apple juice. My dad had poured himself a glass of beer 
And mm. of course we somehow swapped them. So I ended up taking, I chugged <laughs> this beer that I thought was apple juice. And I was like, this is definitely the worst apple juice I have ever tasted. Like there are weird bubbles <laughs> in it. It's rotten. And my dad was there like, weird bubbles. oh no. <laughs> and my parents, of course, they just laughed. Um, they were totally fine with it. But that, that is, that was definitely my, my first sip of alcohol. <laughs> I love that. That's that's so cute. That's a wholesome. That's a wholesome first step. Mm-hmm. I think so. it wasn't sneaky. Your parents were right there. Yeah, they were just like, "Oh, Amy, of course you would do something like this." <laughs> I mean, honestly, color-wise, I could see how you'd confuse them. Right, they're both like that amberish color. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but yeah, thank you, Amy, for being on the podcast and sharing glass of wine with me maybe a bottle I don't know you can continue to drink it after this (laughs) um yeah it was really great listening to your experiences and learning more about your book and your journey to the listeners if you want to pick up her book it's called 21 years young and I'll have a link to your website and this is on Amazon as well isn't it it is yeah yeah yeah, I'll have your Amazon as well linked in the show notes so you guys can look at it and maybe buy a copy I don't know maybe buy an audio version if it's out by then who knows (laughs) yeah but it was really great having you on and yeah just wanted to thank you for coming on it's so great to be on Linda I'm definitely going to continue drinking this wine after our call ends Um, again very much enjoyed sharing this glass of wine with you over a lovely Friday afternoon so Don't forget to share it with the wine lovers in your life and we'll see you next week.